Hello. Welcome. <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> that's not our standard theme song. Um, that's happy birthday. But we do and, have cake. And we have cake. If you're wondering why yeah, I'm... Yeah, and Tom's au- eating it. I'm and audibly chewing. Disgusting. It's because I'm eating cake. Marble cake. Why all the hoopla? <laughs> why all the celebration? Because we've been doing this for one year. Woo-hoo. Happy birthday to us. I say woohoo on every episode, so it's not special. Well, it's, it's a special birthday woohoo. It is. So this is 28... Woohoo's. That's right. Woo-hoos. So that's, I mean, that's more than a year. I think we missed our real I think actually our last episode was our one year mark. Way to go, Tom. <laughs> How is it my fault? Because you're the facilitator. I am the facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen. And uh, joining me as always, uh, my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Your really, really nice colleagues. Hi. <laughs> Ken Best. Still standing despite the uh, nasal congestion. That's right. <laughs> Ken is playing hurt, as they say. He's, he's, he's battling uh, a seasonal cold. Um, I'm battling a slice of cake. You're all in for a real audio treat. <laughs> uh, and it is our, our one-year anniversary, which we celebrated with some cake in the break room here. And we're going to celebrate with some, um, some characteristically excellent pieces, I would yep. say. Yeah. And also, I'll do a history thing, which is not characteristically excellent. So why don't we actually start with um, headlines, birthday headlines. <laughs> They're not birthday headlines, but okay. They're birthday headlines. Julie, what's going on? <laughs> gonna what's going on on our too? birthday? What's <laughs> happening on our birthday? Hey, with some athletics news, three UConn women's track and field student athletes took home gold in their respective events a couple weeks ago at the 2019 American Athletic Conference Track and Field Indoor Championships in Alabama. Junior Divine Oladipo from London in shot put, senior Kat Surin from St. Jerome, Quebec in the 400-meter dash, and senior Susan Aneno from Uganda in the 800-meter run all earned gold medals. The total of 17 events scored, the Huskies posted an overall top five finish. So big congratulations to all of them. Very nice. Ken, what's going on? Seven faculty researchers from uh, UConn are among the 24 leading experts in science, engineering, and technology recently elected to the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, which is a big honor. The academy identifies and studies issues and technological advances of concern to the people of Connecticut and provides expert advice on science and technology-related issues to state government and other uh, state institutions. There are now 118 UConn folk over the years have been elected. Wow. Uh, the seven newly elected members from both UConn on our campuses in stores in the regionals and UConn Health are John Chandy, who's the department head and professor of electrical and computer engineering in the School of Engineering, Emily Germain Lee, chief of the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology and Diabetes in the School of Medicine. She's also a professor of pediatrics. Brian Huey is a professor and department head in materials science and engineering, which is one of our very cool departments. They make stuff so that we can have stuff, I think. That's what they do. <laughs> Sinjin Lee, Presidential Distinguished Professor of Genetics and Genome Sciences at the School of Medicine and also a professor at the Jackson Laboratory for Genomic Medicine. Annabelle Rodriguez-Aquendo, who's the Linda and David Roth Chair of Cardiovascular Research and Professor of Cell Biology at the School of Medicine. Louis Sun, Director of Polymer Research in the Institutes of Material Science and a Professor of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering. And Rikwan Yan, Chair and Professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the School of Medicine. So congratulations to all of our honored professors of science and technology. Yeah, very nice. Um, you know, we're not the only ones with a birthday this month. Julie, who said we didn't have birthday headlines. Huskython turns 20. Oh. This was the 20th anniversary of Huskython, which, of course, is the student-run dance marathon, 18-hour dance marathon to raise money for Connecticut Children's Medical Center. 
And this year, they had a record-breaking total, $1,328,402.19. Who donated 19 cents? I don't know. I don't know. It's a cheapskate, <laughs> uh, which is a $300,000 more from 2018, wow. which was the previous record. Huge. So they did a great job, and there's a, a great photo gallery on UConn Today, which is today.uconn.edu. Go take a look. See the students doing something for charity. I will say that I've always thought of dance marathons as being like, do you ever see the movie They Shoot Horses, don't they? No, but you've referred to it every year since I've been here yeah. when talking about hockey. It's a great film. It's a great film and a, a great novel. And, uh, you know, they were like this grueling Depression-era spectacle. They've really become something else today. Well, you know, uh, the winter is receding. Spring is coming up. St. Patrick's Day is coming up. Mm. Why, don't we, why don't we take a trip to the Emerald Isle, courtesy of Ken Best. Ken, you've got some Irish content for us? Well, it's not actually courtesy of me. It's actually courtesy of Associate Professor of English Mary Burke, who directs the Honors Program and the Irish Literature Concentration in the Department of English here. She's a specialist in modern and contemporary Irish writing. Her teaching and research in Irish literature stresses the broad context of Irish culture and history. She recently strayed a bit from her normal study of literature to publish a cover article in the Journal of Design History titled The Cottage, the Castle, and the Couture Cloak, Traditional Irish Fabrics and Modern Irish Fashions in America circa 1952 to 1969, which traces the success of Irish fashion exports to post-World War II America. Following the popularity of a very good film called The Quiet Man, which is noted for its lush depiction of the Irish countryside. You talk about a couple of influences as, as to the reasons why this happened to be emerging, one of which is the film The Quiet Man, which stars John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. Uh, John Wayne is a boxer who is from Ireland, goes back to Ireland, and the Technicolor, which was a big deal to announce mm -hmm. that it was a Technicolor film back in 1952 when the film was released. People got to see the colors of Ireland uh, in the countryside. At the same time, there was this fascination with Irish-connected celebrities. Mm -hmm. uh, Grace Kelly, whose father was an Olympic champion uh, from Philadelphia, but of Irish-American heritage. And then, of course, we have in the late 1950s and the early 1960s, John F. Kennedy becoming uh, prominent in politics and his wife really showcasing fashion. So you Combine the two of these, and you mentioned that some of the roots are there. There's a lot to unpick there. So I might start with The Quiet Man, which uh, to this day remains a very, very well-known depiction of Ireland from America, which then gets adapted pretty much by uh, tourism interests in Ireland, you know, to sell. So you have this strange journey. So, yeah, Technicolor was huge because this Technicolor landscape of The Quiet Man, this 1952 movie, was really, really influential. It disseminated this image of a color-saturated rural Irish landscape to potential American tourists to Ireland. And I should note as well that the men's costumes in the movie very deliberately showcased um, hand-woven Irish tweed. And to this day, the store 
in Galway that sold uh, the the movie, the the Tweeds advertises that fact. You know, half a century later, it's not a coincidence then that you know 1952 is when Irish fashions start to sell in America, start to be exported in huge numbers. 1952 is this movie, and then it's not a coincidence that the Irish textile industry of that very period then began experimenting with more vibrant colours for wools and lace. So wools and lace used to be white and grey, and very very occasionally you get red wool, and all of a sudden they become technicolour. What's interesting about this is that it begins to be sold as reflective of the Irish landscape when in fact this experimentation with bright dyes really speaks to technological advance and indeed sensitivity to market demands. So again, an absolute modernity is being sold as as tradition. And as you also mentioned, some of the, the deep history from the uh, famine, the potato famine as most people know about it, the economic effects in Ireland, we're still reverberating uh, during the 20th century. In the now that we're in the post World War II era, the government of Ireland is looking for ways to improve the economy, which was still trying to recover after the war. Of course, I think fashion is one of the spheres in which the the you can actually trace it back quite directly to the famine. So you know, as I said, in the 1950s, there was a very successful Irish uh, fashion export, and it was marketed as a continuation of very, very vaguely defined what were called old traditions. And I think they had to be vague because the true heritage of Irish needlecrafts and textiles would not have been palatable because these craft industries, you know, upon which really this mid-century fashion export industry relied, these were rooted in the trauma of the famine. Clothing promoted um, explicitly as Irish in in this mid-century period, they often combined hand-woven textiles with very fashionable cuts. And despite the fact that they're always fashionably cut, the marketing only really emphasized what was called the tradition. So it was a sort of a sleight of hand in many ways, and it deflected from the fact that any heritage aspect of Irish fashion garments generally inhered in these textiles and their famine-era um, you know, fair trade origins, really, rather than their design. There was effectively no traditional Irish clothing in the 50s. There was only traditional Irish fabrics. You mentioned the sleight of hand that you use in your paper, that these were articles of clothing made by poor people that became known as luxury items when right. they were marketed. It, it's, it's an odd industry in many ways in that the, the, the primary um, uh, designers are indeed uh, Irish women. And they're often elite Irish women or Irish women who certainly have elite connections. Sybil Connolly, whom I may talk about, was very good friends with Jackie Kennedy, for instance. That said, you know, male-centered and, and male-authored Irish economic histories often underemphasize um, the degree to which this apparel industry in the 1950s and men, women's paid people piecework, you know, was was in some ways, it's an interesting way to think about women's history. Yes, Connolly was herself an elite woman. She employed uh, over 100 women to weave and crochet in the 1950s. And she earned half a million dollars a year from her American exports. There were women working at home and in factories who made um, or finished these garments, these textiles and, and the lace ordered by Connolly and her rivals. And it's clear that the fashion boom benefited um, Irish women with very few economic avenues. 
So because there are all these seesaws between signifiers of tradition and modernity in the marketing of Irish fashion, but the reality was that Ireland was neither fully traditional in the way, you know, promised by the quiet man, in the way promised to tourism, nor was it evenly modernized either. Thus, I think the, uh, you know, this female dominated workforce for Irish couture um, can be seen both as exploited and as harbingers of Irish women's um, growing autonomy. It must be stressed, though, that the low wages in a still developing Irish economy meant that the mid-1950s couture prices were low. So, for instance, an Irish couture dress in a New York department store would be $400. The Parisian equivalent was $2,000. And, of course, these women, the women who worked, who did the piecework for the likes of Connolly, could not afford these clothes themselves. They themselves wore ready-to-wear garments or locally tailored garments. There's an interesting echo uh, here, um, you know, right back to the post period again, in which very exquisite, very expensive um, handmade Irish lace was worn only by the Irish and the British elite, because the women who made it, of course, lived in cottages, could not afford it themselves. And there's a lovely um, 1960 Irish government survey of the wool industry, and it concluded, I love this phrase, that, quote, peasant handwovens have become a luxury product right to this day. You did a lot of work with the uh, historical costume and textile collection. Laura Crow, who was a costume designer for many years for the Connecticut Repertory Theater. Uh, what was it like working with those folks who have this amazing collection and are now virtual museums, so you can go online and look at all the gowns and costumes that exist? Laura was incredibly generous w- with her time and w- with her holdings. Um, she photographed um, a 1958 Irish wool suit for me, and it, made it, it actually made it onto the cover. Um, of the journal issue. They have incredible holdings and I was uh, amazed at at what they had when I went looking that right here on my doorstep were the kinds of garments that I needed to photograph for my article. That was really good. Turning now to Julie Bartuka for our birthday special. (laughs) Yes. What are we going to hear? We are going to hear Manisha Sinha, who is the Draper Chair in American History here at UConn. She was born in India and pretty much destined to be a historian. Her father was an Indian Army general who's been called the Thinking Man's Soldier and was among the first Indian officers in the British Army, while her mother was a Gandhian national who subscribed to the values of Indian patriotism and nonviolence. Her parents constantly encouraged historical debate around the dinner table at their house, and an interest in history definitely runs in the family. One of Sinha's sisters is also an endowed history professor in the U.S. The other is a high school history teacher, and her brother is the Indian ambassador to the U.K., so he's got the diplomat connection there. Sinha is very outspoken, especially on Twitter, when current events dovetail with her expertise, and she received a lot of attention last fall when Tom's favorite, the rapper Kanye West, made headlines for tweeting that slavery was a choice, quote Kanye West. Sinha told Time magazine that West should read the history, including the slave spirituals that his own music stems from. Her 2016 book, The Slave's Cause, was longlisted for the National Book Award for Nonfiction, among other prestigious awards. And while it examines events of long ago, its lessons are very relevant today. How did you get interested in American history? So growing up in India, I was really interested in the question of race and democracy, particularly because Martin Luther King Jr. used Gandhian notions of nonviolent protest Mm -hmm. during the civil rights movement. So I really saw the connection there between the struggle against the British in India and the struggle for equal rights and for black equality in the United States. And I decided to do U.S. history, and I had to go to graduate school to do that. And 
the only place where I could do that was in the United States. In India, usually we have these American studies programs that lean heavily on American literature rather than history. Interesting. Okay. So I ended up coming to the U.S. to get my Ph.D. You talked about your time at Columbia, and your dissertation there became your first book, The Counter-Evolution of Slavery, Politics and Ideology in Antebellum, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And you've said that after that, you wanted to write a book about people that you actually liked. Mm -hmm. So how did that lead you to your highly acclaimed book, The Slave's Cause? My first job was also at the University of Massachusetts. And since I had looked at pro-slavery ideology and states' rights theory for my first book, I decided I wanted to look at the northern side of that ideological and political divide. And I decided to study the abolitionists. And I was lucky that I was in New England because all my sources were here. So there's a huge anti-slavery collection in Boston Public Library. There's a lot of material at the University of Massachusetts, but also at Smith College. So I was able to access all these primary sources on the abolition movement. So it was my interest in doing this, but also being lucky enough to be in a place where my sources were close by. And then I could always make easy trips to New York, to Philadelphia, to Ohio, to Michigan. My sister teaches in Michigan, oh. so that is always good. So it was easy for me to sort of collect all the material on abolitionism. Maybe I shouldn't say easy because it actually took me <laughs> 10 years because oh, wow. it's such a huge amount of material of which I think just uh, a little bit of it actually makes it into the book on my book on abolition, The Slave's Cause. I mean, it's a huge book. It's over 500 pages. You kind of correct some misconceptions about abolition, particularly that the abolitionists were mostly white people. Mm -hmm. And you tell the story of some of the black activists at the center of the movement. Mm -hmm. What other themes or details did you really, once you did all that research, feel passionate about kind of setting the record straight on? Yeah, so a lot of work had been done on black abolitionists, but it was kind of ghettoized, as was work done on women abolitionists. There were separate books on these mm -hmm. people, but there was no way to sort of include that in a reevaluation of the movement as a whole. And I really wanted to talk about the abolition movement as an interracial movement that involved ordinary American citizens. There were men and women, blacks and whites. So I really wanted to center that. The other thing that I did, which was a little different, I think, from previous book was really centered the notion of slave resistance in the history of abolition. We normally look at resistance by the enslaved, but we don't, don't think of them as abolitionists. But I could really see how slave resistance really fed into the abolition movement, not just in terms of slave rebellions, but also the fugitive slave issue mm -hmm. and how runaway slaves uh, like Frederick Douglass, who's merely the most famous of them, or Harriet Tubman, really sort of reshaped the movement in the 40s and 50s, radicalized it, and took leadership positions in it. The other thing that I think the book did was not to look at even the whites in the movement as somehow the sort of conservative middle class people who were kind of racially paternalistic or they were sort of conservative on economic issues. I actually saw that they were quite radical too for their times and quite ahead of their times. So the book also recovers white abolitionists and their true radicalism. And I saw how their interests in abolition overlapped with many other 
contemporary radical movements like feminism, mm-hmm. women's rights, the labor movement, pacifism, movements against wars and militarism, utopian socialism, trying to address the problem of inequality that was coming about at that time already with the rise of early capitalism. Many of them were also concerned about Native American rights and the fact that they were being dispossessed and despoiled of their lands, especially when they came across instances as in Florida where runaway slaves many times joined these Indian nations. I was able to sort of weave that whole story together, and that's why the book ended up being fairly large, because I wanted to show that the abolitionists were not just these one-issue people, that they were genuine radicals in terms of rethinking or thinking about, I should say, many of the problems in their society. That's fascinating. And as you're talking, I mean, I, we know that history repeats itself and these lessons are extremely relevant today, but it's yeah. it's kind of striking how it's almost all kind of happening again in a way in certain certain conflicts that are happening right now. Absolutely. I mean, the one thing that was really heartening about this book was because normally when I write history books, you know, other academics read it or students who are forced Mm. to read it, read it. But what was interesting about this book was that many activists outside academia picked up on it. And I had people from North Carolina or people involved in, you know, Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. or people involved in other, even people, environmentalists who were interested to see that early abolitionists were talking about, you know, the environmental effects of industrial capitalism, they would all write to me and say, you know, we read your book and we really find it useful and it really speaks to us. And to me, that was the most rewarding part of writing the book. Not all the awards that it won, but really having ordinary people so look back at American history and kind of see themselves carrying on a radical tradition of American democracy. And to me, that was really heartening. What should we learn from this history and how can these lessons help us navigate what's going on right now? Yeah, you know, I think sometimes when people look at American history, they think, okay, there's one narrative that is very triumphant, and then there's another narrative that's very critical. Um, And these are very simplistic, dualistic ways of looking at American history. Because if you look at the project of American democracy, it's always been contested. People have had differing ideas about what constitutes democracy and who is a citizen and who should be entitled to the rights of citizenship. And I think I want most people to realize that it's neither this or that entirely, that this is always a contested project. So even under slavery, you had Americans, you know, fighting against slavery. Um, Even when you had, like, the worst excesses of the Gilded Age when, you know, there was uh, lead in our water and food, which, unfortunately, again, that's coming Mm -hmm. back. Uh, You know, sometimes you feel history really does repeat itself. But um, you you always had people who were fighting for different visions of democracy and broader and more humane visions. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that, you know, it's not something that is determined or flows just from the top, uh, that there may be periods where you feel like pretty hopeless and you feel see a rollback on, on many things, whether it's, you know, women's rights or environmental protections or, or black rights, you know, a whole host of things or immigrant rights. There are still voices who have an alternative vision. And I think we should keep that in mind because I feel You know, I look at all the young students I teach and I really feel hopeful because they're all invested in this project in one way or the other. And I think if we can just sort of 
keep in mind that we all should be committed as citizens into this democracy, the way the abolitionists said. You know, they, they were fighting when, you know, slaveholders had a lock on the federal government, hmm. uh, and they were really fighting against long odds. I, I, that, that's a good lesson to take away. Professor Sinha is currently working on a book about the period of Reconstruction after the Civil War, um, particularly about when black men first got the right to vote and elected the first African-Americans to state and national governments. She is on Twitter at Prof M. Sinha, that's S-I-N-H-A. And she also wanted everyone to know that UConn is hosting a conference on April 19th and 20th called The Greater Reconstruction, American Democracy After the Civil War. Leading scholars from around the nation will be here for sessions over the course of the two days, and it costs just $5 for students and $10 for the public to attend. And you can find more information on that at history.uconn.edu. Very nice. For Tom's History Corner, this year I actually have a double shot of the History Corner. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, and first, uh, first things first, I want to give credit to Ashley Anglisano of the Daily Campus. Mm-hmm. Ashley, I apologize if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Because she dug up what I think is the source of a persistent urban legend about our favorite good boy himself, Jonathan the dog. We're talking about Jonathan again. We're talking about Jonathan again. Always talk about Jonathan. When we f- the first Jonathan History Corner we did, I was trying to find the roots of the urban legend that the student government had tried to sell him. That's right. Sometime in the late 60s or early 70s because he was a quote-unquote symbol of the man. <laughs> God. And I, I mean, that's been on official websites. It's been, I mean, I, this has been a story that's been told for a long time, but I could find no reference of it. So, in the, the Daily Campus, courtesy of Ashley Anglisano, she found an article from February 1965 in the Daily Campus in which the Jonathan Committee, which was formerly a committee at UConn, <laughs> it's a university after all, had discussed trying to uh, discuss the possibility of finding a new mascot because after Jonathan the Sixth was killed in a car accident a fate that befell many Jonathans, they were having a hard time finding a replacement dog. And so they talked about it would be easier to find just another type of mascot entirely. Apparently the thing they considered was the Connecticut Yankee. And the story doesn't mention this, but this was probably prompted by Homer Babbage. We've talked about that. He was obsessed with that. He was. He hated the fact that Yukon was a pun. (laughs) The Husky was a result of a pun. (laughs) He was a historian, and he thought we should have a historical identity. So he wanted us to be the University of Connecticut Yankees. And he wanted us to be the U of C, not UConn. Mm. It didn't didn't take. Didn't fly. Because, uh, <laughs> thanks to the timely intervention of an earthquake, um, <laughs> what there was an earthquake uh, in Alaska oh, that spring. Okay. And, Makes more uh, sense. <laughs> there's actually a lot of earthquakes in Alaska that's been happening pretty recently. In fact, there must be on a fault line. And the University of Connecticut, the students raised some money and sent it to the University of Alaska mm. to help with earthquake relief. And in gratitude. The students at the University of Alaska sent a snow white husky puppy to Yukon who became Jonathan the Seventh. That's a really interesting turn of events. Yeah. Like we'll send you money to help you with your earthquake. Oh, here's a dog. Well they have a lot of them up there. I guess. So they Just come from. found one on the side of the Well, iceberg. Of course my question is if we had become the University of Connecticut Yankees, what would happen to all those Red Sox fans? It would be I know, can you imagine? Also the Mets fans, let's not forget them. Um they're kind of, they had to deal so with wait, it enough. So wait, what does this have to do with selling Jonathan? Then? So I think somewhere along the line, th- this is not explained in Ashley's story, but I think somewhere along the line, this got mixed up with the student government thinking about getting a mascot, a new mascot, because it was hard to find a replacement dog. Mm, with selling it. With Yeah, with the idea that this was some kind of like protest event to because of the man. The man. It wasn't. It was actually just sort of a logistical, practical Yankee-dom. <laughs> 
very interesting. Well, I, I do recall that at some point the Jonathan mascot was dressed in a colonial. Yes, this was during garb. that period. Yes, this was during that period. This was again Homer Babbage's weird attempt to Carrying try to a musket and a, wearing a tricornered hat. That's yep. a cute one. I like that one. He also tried to replace the mortarboards at commencement with tricorn hats. Yeah, right. that's a bizarre, D- misguided. Didn't take. Homer had a lot of good ideas, but he didn't only have good ideas. <laughs> Nor do any of us. No, that's true. That's a fair point. Um, but he has a library name for him. Yep. He does. Again, done something right. thanks to the Daily Campus for unearthing what I think is the missing link. Good job, Ashley. Um, so the, the double shot that I have, it's for our birthday, is we're now part of UConn history. Yeah. We've been going for one of the 138 years of UConn. Yep. So I want to ask both of you. This is living history. This is oral history at its finest. Mm-hmm. What has been your favorite part of the Yukon 360 experience? Oh, God. You're putting me on the spot. Yep. I wasn't prepared for this. Well, oral history at its finest. You go first. Ken, what has been your favorite part of this experience? I get to spend all my time with you guys. Oh, that is super sweet. Well, not all my time. No. A lot of time. You try, though. We try, yes. <laughs> He doesn't get those shots back through the emails, but that's okay. That's part of the deal. Ken's still upset over a burn I <laughs> shot at him this morning. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Working with you guys is so much fun. And just getting to explore things that are different. I feel like I should be thinking of like one particular thing that was my favorite thing, but there isn't one. They've all been awesome. It's just people that we wouldn't normally get to sit down with and talk about things that we wouldn't always get to do in the course of our normal work, I think. I think it's uh, learning a lot more about UConn. Yeah. Yeah. Not just and the history stuff, but uh, all like... What goes on here? The two people we had on today. Right. You know? I mean, I'm not a student here anymore. I would not have encountered their work another way. So this was a neat way to find out. It is really cool. It's funny because I know we're both alums here, but even Ken is an alum of somewhere. You don't always think about everything that you're... Two somewheres, as a matter of you're fact. Univer- yes. All the, but I'm just saying, your university is doing so many things at any given moment, be it the students, the faculty, the staff, the, and that you would just have no idea. And we're hopefully shedding light on a little bit of that. All right. Well, uh, it's been a great year. And this, I think, was a good episode. I hope so. Uh, we'll see you in a fortnight. Well, let's see you, actually. There's, this is, <laughs> this is oh. an entirely auditory. We haven't... One bit of housekeeping that I forgot to say at the top of the show because we had a, a different intro song and I was eating cake. Apple Podcasts mm. sent an email to all the podcasters this week as we were recording uh, saying that you can no longer put episode numbers in your titles as part of their metadata because they say it's a bad user experience, which is baffling to me. And I think it's a mistake to have the fussiest and weirdest and most persnickety tech company have so much power. That's another <laughs> issue. Uh, so we'll say it here. This is episode 28. But going forward, we probably won't be writing episode 28, uh, except on our, our website. The, yes. Uh, yeah. The and hopefully site. we don't disappear from the feed. Yeah, hopefully they don't, they don't pull our old episodes. We're available everywhere else that you get your podcasts. Yeah, every non-weird place that you get your podcasts. Uh, all right, so that's the last bit of housekeeping. Thanks for this year and hopefully many more to come. Julie, where can people find you and what do you want them to know about? They can find me on Twitter at Julie Bartuka, And I want to shamelessly plug the new issue of Yukon Magazine at magazine.yukon.edu. And for many of you in your mailboxes, got some shameless self-promotion. I wrote the captions for a photo feature called Clubbing, which is about not raves of the 90s, but which is about Yukon's student clubs, of which there are 650 plus. Did you know that? I did not. It's not about all of them. It's only about a select number, but it's really cool. And the internet experience for that is fabulous. 
very well designed by our talented designers. And there's some bonus content there, so go check that out. Excellent. Ken? I'm usually on UConn today and on 91.7 WHUS in stores. Although if you were listening last week, uh, we were preempted by baseball. That's fair. It was a team looks nice, good this year. sunny day in Florida, I think. I don't know uh, where they were. Florida or South. Arizona. Someplace warm. Not like here. And uh, so we, we had to take a back seat, but we're happy to do that. So that just gives us an extra week to prepare for the next one. The team looks really good this year. And you know what I found out today? Kind of a Tom's History Corner special nugget. You know, the inventor of the wiffle ball was a left-handed pitcher at the University of Connecticut. I didn't know that. Graduated I class didn't of know 1929. Ball was Connecticut. Yeah, That's cool. Yep. So, uh, yeah. All right. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter. This podcast has its own Twitter account. It's at UConn Podcast. You can find me at TJ Breen or at Maine underscore old, which is where I put old photos. There's a bunch of old baseball photos up. There's a cake photo somewhere floating around. <laughs> <laughs> so you can look at the photo and listen to me masticate and... <laughs> And just have the whole full sensory Can experience. Can we not say that word? That's I don't a, like that word. It's a perfectly cromulent Should word. Should we put the partially eaten cake from the, in the kitchen uh, on there? Yeah. Just to show that people ate it? Why don't we do that? I think people believe people ate the cake without that a picture. We might of need a second piece after this. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We're going to have some minstrels, courtesy of Killer Tracks, sing, uh, plangently sing us out with a, a beautiful ode to our birthday. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. <laughs>